ask you to open up your Bibles again to Ephesians chapter 2. So that's page 1156 in the Red Bibles or page whatever it is in your own Bibles or whatever point in your Kindle Bibles or the various, or you could download it from Bible Gateway. Um, we live in a world of choices. So has that given you enough time to open up Ephesians chapter 2 yet? Let's pray as we approach God's word together. Thank you, Father God, for your scriptures. Thank you for your Apostle Paul. Thank you for this letter he wrote to the church in Ephesus. Thank you for that church. They sound like a good church. We ask that by your word, by your scriptures, you will encourage us to wander at and enjoy and bask in the dimensions of your grace. Amen. Okay, everyone, so it's October 25th. You know what that means. What's coming up in exactly two calendar months' time? It's Christmas time. That's exactly it. And so I love Christmas time. I've just realized that I've forgotten the clicker. Can someone just run me the clicker? I love Christmas time because I love both giving and getting gifts. And there's one thing about gift giving in the 21st century. Because stuff goes obsolete so quickly, okay, so you know how things are built in obsolescence, so toys break down, right? And because technology gets superseded so quickly, we need the i6, the i6.2, the, you know, the iPhones, the iPad, the iGadgets. And also clothes even wear out and go out of fashion so quickly, fashions change so quickly. You know the benefit of that? It doesn't matter what we gave people last year, we can give them the same thing this year, the next version. Because the kids would have broken the toys. Or the fashions have gone, like it, the clothes have changed fashion. Or the software and the electronic gadgets, they need the next upgrade anyway. So you can just forget about whatever you gave in the past. We can give people brand new gifts. Because, I mean, it's not like we can give someone one gift that actually lasts forever and satisfies them forever. Is there? Like, <laughs> there's not a gift like that, is there? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, is about God giving us a gift. Now, God gives us something better than toys. He gives us something better than electronic devices. And he gives us something better than the latest fashion. God gives us the gift of status, the right to rule the universe alongside the Lord Jesus. It's there in the middle of verse 6. Ephesians 2 verse 6, it's the middle of the passage and the high point of the logic. The second half of verse 6 says this, God seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now the him there, okay, so God seated us with him is God himself. God gives us a seat on his heavenly throne. Now, some of us here were um, business leaders, you know, managers and that sort of thing. You know when one of your kids might have run into your office and sat on your swivel chair and played at being dad and sort of led a business meeting or something cute like that? That's kind of fun, but we don't actually give our children authority to make decisions. I mean, you know, they'd vote themselves an extra helping of chocolate or something. That's about, God really actually gives us a seat alongside his heavenly throne, ruling the universe. Now, where is God? Anyway, he's in the heavenly realms. And where is Jesus? He's in the heavenly realms. There's the key to the passage. 
we can only share God's throne when we are related to Jesus by faith. Because we do not have the right to rule the universe on, us, on our own like natural selves. That's what the first part of this passage is about. Verses 1 to 3. Let's read verses 1 to 3. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. So these verses say there's three reasons why we cannot naturally share God's rule. And the first reason is we don't naturally want to live under God's rule ourselves. We naturally want to follow our own corrupt desires. That's what verse 3 says. Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Now, as soon as we read that, we kind of think, oh, you know, that's not really us, because this is a church full of decent people. We don't, yes, we know that sometimes we want stuff that's bad for us. Sometimes we have desires that we recognize, they're, they're evil, they're destructive, and so we don't give in to them. We control them, we manage them. If this verse applies to anyone, it applies to those drunkards down at the pub, because we're, we're good people here in church. All those corrupt, evil people, they're down at the pub getting off their head, and then tomorrow morning they'll wake up with a headache. Okay, that's actually true that we here probably are the kind of people where we've learned to manage those desires that we recognize to be evil. But just think for a minute. What if we gave in to those desires? What kind of people would we be if we actually expressed ourselves naturally? What if every time we got angry with someone, we actually yelled at them? Maybe actually like slapped them or punched them like we feel like doing. You know those times like someone's been really rude or just done something so stupid where you kind of want to just smack them? And... Like you restrain yourself because you know, well, we just don't do that here. We're adults. We don't sort of clobber each other. Or you just know that they're trying to goad you. And if you get, like, snap at them, they'll be like, you, you give them a weapon to punish you with. And you know those moments? Well, what if we did that? If we were the kind of people, if we actually expressed ourselves, we'd, we'd lose our friends our family would stop inviting us around because we'd get this reputation as a scary, angry, violent person. What if we only went to work when we felt like it? <laughs> now, okay, maybe some of us here love our job. We wake up in the morning going, yes, office time. But I suppose most of us, we, you know, we're sort of like, meh, work. Okay, I go because I need the, the money. Maybe some of us here seriously hate our job and it's like, oh, I got a headache, I need a Panadol before I go into the office. What if we only turned up when we felt like it? Well, we'd soon know how it felt to be unemployed. We don't always give in 
to our evil desires. But the fact that we have these evil desires show what we're really like. When we express ourselves, that's when we, we know what we are really like. In fact, have a close look at that verse, okay, in the language of the verse. We must pay attention to the Bible and even where the adjectives and nouns are. Verse 3 says, we gratify the cravings of our sinful nature. It does not say, we gratify the occasionally sinful cravings of our good nature. It doesn't say that, does it? It doesn't even say we gratify the occasionally sinful cravings of our neutral nature. The adjective sinful, which just means against God, okay, corrupted, evil, ignoring God. The adjective sinful is attached to the noun nature. And that means we are naturally turned away from, oriented away from God. The fact, because we are turned away from God, and therefore turned away from each other, that's why we have these evil cravings. Now, because we're dignified, decent, upright people, we don't give in to them. Good, I'd rather you don't give in to them more, more times than you do. But we have to be honest. We are not naturally people who want to follow God. We are not normally, naturally people who are inclined towards God, who like to follow Him, who, who find pleasure in obeying Him. And that is why we need Jesus. Because Jesus was different. He naturally followed God. Have a look at John chapter 4. Here it is, just verse 34. Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And that's why Jesus deserves to rule the world. Just uh, it, it, We saw it last week when Matthew talked to us about the first uh, half of Ephesians 1. God's plan is to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, that is Christ. Jesus deserves to rule the universe alongside God, alongside the Father. Because the Father can trust him to always want to do what is godly, what is right, what, is, what the Father himself finds satisfaction in. So the question for us is not, will we suppress our desires? Will we be good, well-behaved, morally upright people? That's, that's nice. That means we'll be morally upright, well-behaved sinners. The question for us is, have we put our trust in Jesus? Are we related to him by faith? Because that's the only way we can share his status of ruling the universe alongside God. The first reason we can't naturally, normally rule the universe is our corrupt desires. The second reason is we follow the world. Have a look at verse 2. So verse 2 begins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. Now we've already seen that we as individuals, this passage says, we as individuals don't naturally want to follow God. We naturally want to rebel against God. What happens when you put a bunch of rebels together? They form an army, of course. And as an army, they train together. They encourage each other. They teach each other how to work against the government. That's what this world has become. This world is a training camp for rebellion against God where we instinctively learn 
just because everybody else is doing it. We just get into habits and ways of living and ways of thinking where we don't even realize we're rejecting God and turning away from Him and insulting Him. Different kinds of societies, different sort of parts of the world with different histories and different sort of traditions, rebel against God in different ways. So, for, so in more traditional societies, like where I come from, I was born in Sri Lanka, many of us, okay, born overseas, traditional societies, family is a big deal. And what happens there is, if the Bible says one thing, but the way your family operates says another thing, we just instinctively do what the family wants. We don't even think about it. it the, the Bible kind of bounces off the bulletproof exterior of our family expectations, because that's how we were brought up. And that's, everybody does it. I mean, who, 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 who follows the Bible at that? We, we may be so used to following our family traditions in this, we don't even realize, we don't hear the Bible when it challenges us, because it's so taken for granted and everybody's doing it. The way Western society works is in one sense exactly the opposite. If traditional society is big on families, Western society, everything's about the individual. Who cares about family? But then the way it shapes us is different, but still rejecting Jesus. Because what happens is Jesus is useful, I'll follow Jesus as long as he's good for me. As long as Jesus is giving me a good life, finding me a nice boyfriend, a nice girlfriend, a nice husband, a, a nice wife. As long as Jesus finds me a good job or how to find success in my career, then I'll follow him. But as soon as following Jesus is inconvenient or boring or no, more, no fun anymore, then I'm going to look after number one, thanks, because that's what we do, isn't it? Everybody's into doing that. In traditional societies, we are shaped against God in one way, one particular form. In Western individualistic societies, we're shaped against God in a different way. But guess who loses in both? Jesus, the biblical God-centered way of operating. And we can't, we, we can't kid ourselves that we're immune to this, folks. We live in this world. Yes, we're not of the world. Ex excellent. But we're in the world. And it's going to shape us. That's why we need Jesus again. Because Jesus naturally followed God. And in following God, he challenged the taken-for-granted ways that his society operated. When we read the Bible and find out about Jesus, those of us who have grown up Christian or been following Jesus for a while, we're too familiar with how Jesus operates. We need to carefully think about the surprise, the shock, the insult value of what this lunatic was saying. Have a look at Mark chapter 3. So, Jesus' mother and brothers come to and are outside the house where he's preaching. He's told, hey, mom's here and your, and your brothers and your bros. And he says this, who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Those of us who come from a traditional family... You know you don't insult your mom like that. Doesn't matter how young or old you are. I'm 40 years old. If I said that sort of thing about mom, she'd probably you know, go to some spanking. 
Your mother gave you life. She put clothes on your back. She fed you with her own hands. Is this your religion? Is it Jesus? Huh? Being rude to your own mom and ignoring your brothers whom you played with and whom you learned your tradecraft with. Is that your religion, Jesus? We mustn't underestimate how countercultural, surprising, insulting Jesus was to the world that he operated in. The, the normal, taken-for-granted ways of operating. What he's doing here is he's subverting normal ways of operating to basically say, I am more important than family, and people who do God's will by listening to my teaching, they are my family more than even my blood family. And that is rude in first century like Israeli culture, and I'm sure in many of our traditional family cultures nowadays. And who does this guy Jesus think he is anyway? God or something. We need Jesus to show us and to teach us how to live in this world and not be characterized by the world. But the, I, perhaps as I've been speaking, we sort of feel a bit like burdened and depressed because we know how the world pushes in on us. And they, it, it's hard. We're in a job and everybody knows you don't talk about Christianity and stuff and... Other people of other religions are allowed to speak and they're celebrated. But as soon as you just park a Bible on the table, you just feel the awkwardness in the room. Yes, it's hard. That's why we need to trust Jesus. Do not burden yourself that you have to overcome the world. That's not what Jesus says in John 15. In this world you, have, you will have trouble, so I want you to overcome the world. That's not what he says. In this world you will have trouble. Take heart, says Jesus. I... He has overcome the world. Do you trust Jesus? If you put your trust in him, don't worry. Little by little, as we read the Bible, pray and talk together, he will show us how to shape our lives around him more, more and more. So, why is it that we can't naturally share God's rule? We naturally turn away from God. We naturally get shaped by this world which shapes us against God. And as we do this, the third reason is we actually end up following the devil and living under his rule. Have a look at verse 2. It says you follow the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. We're not used to thinking of the supernatural world. We're scientific, we're technological, we're advanced people. A couple of weeks ago, Steve Adams uh, gave a Bible talk on the supernatural realm. It's on, our, it's on the internet, on the Epping Press website. Have a listen. As people who believe the Bible and who believe Jesus, we believe in supernatural evil. God has overcome it. Jesus has overcome it. We don't need to be frightened by it, but don't ignore it. As we just give, as we follow our own desires... And as we let the world shape us, we unconsciously side with the ultimate cosmic rebel, the devil himself. And again, this is why we need Jesus. The Gospels record the first thing that happened after Jesus was baptized. So, you know the story. Jesus goes to be baptized by John the Baptist. When John the Baptist is baptizing him, the Holy Spirit comes down and the Father speaks from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. 
Now, if you were the Holy Spirit, what's the first thing that you would have Jesus do once you've come upon him? Maybe do some miracles so as to show that Jesus really is the Messiah and like show off a little bit. Maybe empower him to teach, to show that he is the true leader and the true preacher. What did the Holy Spirit actually do? It propelled Jesus out into the desert to do battle with the devil. We don't have to overcome the devil. Jesus Christ has. In Hebrews it says Jesus has been tempted in every way just as we are yet was without sin. Our greatest need is not physical healing. The doing miracles, Jesus really did miracles, but our greatest need is not physical healing. Our greatest need is not teaching. Yes, the Holy Spirit equipped Jesus to teach, but our greatest need is not teaching. Our greatest need is to defeat our cosmic enemy, the cosmic rebel against God, the devil. Take heart. Jesus has conquered the devil. So again, the question for us is not, are you resisting the devil? Because the answer is no, none of us are, as good as we should. The question is, do you trust Jesus? The one who really has completely overcome the devil. If you've put your trust in him, relax. He will teach you little by little to sense when you're being tempted, to recognize the dangers and to overcome them little by little. He'll shape you to be more and more like him and in being more and more like him to sort of show what it means to be ruled by him and show his rule to others. Relax, it's fine. You don't need to burden yourself. Have you put your trust in Jesus, the victorious one? So there's the three reasons. We can't naturally share God's rule. We are naturally turned away from God. The world shapes us to be against God. And in all of this, we actually side with the devil. That's why the end of verse 3 says, we were by nature objects of wrath. Now, wrath just means judgment. Because we're turned away from God, God is rightly angry with us. And he puts us under his judgment as rebels. That's what kings do to rebels, isn't it? In fact, we're so rebellious against God, that verse 1 says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, did you notice why, again, why is God angry at us? Is it because of our deeds? That's not what verse 3 says. It doesn't say, we were because of our wicked deeds, objects of wrath. It says, we were by nature. That's the scary thing with this passage. The apostle is very honest about how we're naturally turned away from God, And because we're naturally turned away from God, we make him mad. Now, you know how sometimes you have a family gathering and then there's some of the couple of people from the family have had a fight. And so you just feel the awkwardness in the air. That's what it means here. They're like, they just know. They, they, They turn up and they don't have to say anything. They don't have to do anything. You just feel the anger, the spite, the, the undealt with anger there. It's like, you know, one of them says, good morning. The other one says, what's so good about it? Of course, the Ephesians... Now, uh, by the way, just one thing to note as an aside. Do you notice how Paul says in verse 1, as for you, but then in verse 3 he says, we were nature, by nature, objects of wrath. When we're decent, upright people like us, we tend to point the finger at everybody else. 
and say, we're the good Christians, the rest of the world is going to hell. That's not what the apostle did. Now, he didn't hold back on saying honestly to the Ephesians, you guys were, before you tr put your trust in Jesus, you were going, heading for hell and damnation. God was angry with you. It, you were dead. He, he doesn't hold back on us. And then he says, guess what, guys? I was like that. And we, the, the Jewish Christians whom I represent, and I'm speaking on behalf of, we were all like that. Putting himself absolutely equal. We all naturally turn away from God. We are all, by nature, under his judgment. And so much under his judgment, it's as if we're already dead. Now, I'm not a... I'm not a farming kind of guy, so I've never seen this myself, but people tell me that if you butcher an animal, the muscles still spasm, and so like you can kill an animal like a chicken, and it still can run around. So you know that phrase, running around like a headless chook? I don't know if that's true. Somebody told me that this morning, yeah, they've actually seen it, that it's true. So if I actually saw a chook without a head running around, I think I'd just go, eee, faint, because I'm, you know, I'm, not in, I'm not used to that sort of thing. But... That's what we are to God. We're already dead. But we're, what life we have in this world is just a few muscle spasms before we keel over. This is why God's grace is so amazing. Like John Newton says in his famous hymn. Why it's so unexpected, why it's so weird. Look at the dimensions of grace in verses 4 to 7. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us, in Christ Jesus. This is the dimensions, the amazing, the... The, the, the complete opposites of, of God's grace, his generosity. He takes us from dead and damned to not just raised and living, but raised and ruling alongside Jesus. Where is Jesus now? He's not in the grave. The atheists love to mock Christianity and say, oh, Christians believe in uh, dead people coming back to life. Ha, ha, ha. Well, yes, we do, because we believe in supernatural power. Shock. Okay, look at Ephesians, here's Ephesians 1, verses 20 and 21, which is just before our passage. God the Father raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. God didn't just raise Jesus from the dead. We're very good at arguing for that, and we talk about, yeah, you know, the, the historicity of the New Testament documents and the eyewitness accounts. Look, I believe that. Go to town. That's, that's fantastic. But there's more to the resurrection than the mere fact of a man who was dead coming back to life. Other religions believe that. The significance, according to the Bible, is that Jesus rules. He is raised and he's ruling the universe. He's more powerful than Malcolm Turnbull, uh, Prime Minister. He's more powerful than the High Court of Australia. Jesus rules over atheist China, whether they like it or not. 
Jesus rules over ISIS, whether they like it or IS, whatever they're calling themselves these days. You know, and the Middle East, where Christians are getting persecuted and so on, Jesus actually is in, it rules over all of that. The only options for us is to rebel against that rule and come under his judgment or accept it. That's about it. We get too easily impressed or intimidated by worldly power. So we see political power, like you know, political parties or lobby groups, uh, petitions, that sort of thing. And we think, yeah, if the church was more political, then we'd get somewhere and make an impact and make a difference in the world. Or we see the power of the media to shape public opinion and stuff, and we say, yeah, if the church was more powerful in the media, then we'd get somewhere and make an impact. Or we see the power of management and organizations, and we think, yeah, if the church was run more like a business, then we'd get somewhere and make an impact. We need to be more impressed with the power, the cosmic, ultimate, supreme power of the risen Lord Jesus. If we were more, as a church, if we were more confident of Jesus' power, then we'll get somewhere and make a difference. And that's because we'll be more confident of the status Jesus gives us, ruling alongside of him. Verse 6, God raised us up with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly realms. When we put our trust in Jesus, God shares everything that Jesus has with us, including his rule. God makes space for Jesus on the throne and then Jesus shuffles across and says, come on up, come on, have, have some fun here. This is the dimensions of grace. So the end of verse 5 says, it is by grace you have been saved. Verse 7 God says, God did all this in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God's grace is his attitude towards rebels. His unexpected kind of irrational, weird goodness to rebels. Look closely at how these verses describe God's attitude to us and just pause to think how strange, how amazing it is. Verse 4 says that God loves us. Why should God love rebels? Who do we love? We love people who are attractive, right? We love people who make us feel happy. We love people who can do something good to us and share our life and give us benefit. God loves people who hate him. God loves people who want him dead. You realize that's what sin does, okay? Jesus is God in the flesh, God incarnate. Sinful people killed Jesus. That means sin wants God dead. What would we say to a person who's in love with someone who wants to murder them? That sounds like something out of a horror show. If we'd counsel someone and send them to like therapy saying, are you nuts? They want to kill you and you're in love with them? God, God's love, his grace is a little bit loopy. It doesn't work by human standards. It, we can't understand quite how he operates. All we can do is say thank you. 
and then verse 4 says God is merciful and verse 7 says God is kind but why should God be kind and merciful to rebels again what would we say to a judge who is a little bit like soft on criminals so suppose someone's been convicted of murder and he turns up you know in front of the judge to be sentenced judge says murder eh? first degree mm, six months community service picking up garbage in the local school next six months community service for murder come on that's not enough punishment that's not fair it's it's the judge would end up in jail, or at least, you know, the judge would get sacked or something. That's, that's not. What does God do to people who have been convicted of theocide, of killing the Son of God? Oh, you know, come and share my rule. Huh? We can't understand God's grace from the perspective of this world. That's why in verse 7, Paul talks about the incomparable riches of his grace. It's just mind blowing. It's unspeakable. It's incomprehensible. It's too big. It's too different. We don't get it. All we can do is worship him and say thanks so much because we are the criminal that deserves to be punished. We are the people who previously hated him at least. All we can do is accept God's grace. We can't replicate it. We can't, certainly can't deserve it. That's what the famous verses 8 and 9 say. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We can't do anything to deserve sharing God's rule in, over the universe. We can't. All we can do is entrust ourselves to Jesus. That's what faith is. Faith is giving up on ourselves, admitting that... We're naturally turned away from God and we don't deserve anything but judgment. And then just helplessly but joyfully and worshipfully casting ourselves on Jesus, trusting that his mighty resurrected power can do what we can't. Take us from being dead and damned to raised and ruling alongside him. The church is a product of God's grace. Verse 10 talks about exactly that. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The church is, the, is constructed by God's generosity. We are founded upon, built upon God's incomprehensible grace in taking us from under his judgment to ruling the universe alongside him. As the product of grace, let's do gracious things. Let's Let's show some of that grace to the world in being kind and forgiving and generous to people, especially idiots who don't deserve it. But more of this in future weeks, when we look at chapter 4 and following, when there's lots of stuff there about telling the truth and um, doing good in the name of God and gr grace characterizing our families, grace characterizing our marriages. It's all there, but just for now, let's finish with just reflecting and rejoicing in the dimensions of God's grace. We can't give each other a gift that lasts forever and that actually satisfies forever. God can. And he has. He has made us completely new people. His workmanship. Shaped by and products of his grace. 
Do you trust Jesus? Have you given up on yourself and helplessly cast yourself on him? Enjoy it. Be and revel in, bask in the glories and the, the, the delights of being a product, a work of God's amazing grace. Let's pray. Father God, you truly are amazing. Your generosity knows no bounds. We can't get it. Our imagination isn't enough. Our language isn't enough. You have spoken to us, your apostle even wrestled with to try and find the right words to articulate what he knew about what you do for us. You took him from being a rebel against you, determined to kill your people, to someone who proclaimed the faith he tried to stamp out. We thank, we, we thank you for doing the same for us. We admit that we are too quick to get sort of comfortable with grace. We, we, we don't realize how badly off we were. And by not realizing how badly off we were, we sort of don't give you the credit that you deserve, the dimensions of your grace. We're sorry for that. Help us to enjoy the, the, the wonders of what you've done for us in your Son, taking us from under your judgment to ruling the universe alongside of you. And as the weeks go on, show us how to be people shaped by and characterized by grace, that we would do these good deeds that you've prepared for us, that the imprint of your generosity, your grace, your kindness, your mercy, your love, that all of this would be imprinted on our lives as individuals and as a church together. Amen.